Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Dr. Samuel Romani, tutor of politics and international relations at the University of Oxford. Sam is also a non-resident fellow at the Gulf International Forum, and he's currently writing a book on Russia's foreign policy towards Africa, which will be published next year by Oxford University Press and Hearst and Company. Sam is a regular contributor to El Monitor and a specialist on Russian foreign policy, North Africa and the Middle East, Red Sea security issues, and the dispute between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. My conversation with Sam Romani on all of these topics and more begins now. Sam, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. It's great to be on this podcast. Let's get right into it. And let's start with the dispute between Egypt and Sudan on the one hand and Ethiopia on the other over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, as we call it by the acronym. Egypt is concerned that absent an internationally supervised agreement, the GERD will affect the Nile's water flow to Egypt, and Egypt depends on the Nile for about 95% or so of its water. Now, Ethiopia said, no way, it's an Ethiopian dam, and Egypt's concerns may be overstated. There was a Security Council meeting on July 8th, Egypt had brought the case to the council and wanted the council to become more engaged and has backed a Tunisian resolution, but no one's biting, including the US and Russia, which have kicked the dispute back to the African Union, whose mediation has so far stalled. So that's where we are. How do you assess the state of the talks the role of the U.S. in helping settle this dispute, and why Egypt may be disappointed with the Russian position so far? So the three excellent questions and a great introduction to this. I would say that the progress of the GERD talks are really uh, in a lot of trouble, and that's because Egypt and Sudan are both open to internationalizing the dispute. They're both willing to take this to the Arab League. They're both willing to take this to the UN Security Council. And they're also open to the role of the external regional power mediators getting more involved, like the UAE, perhaps Qatar, perhaps Saudi Arabia, maybe even less so on the Egyptian side, maybe the Sudanese side might even want Turkey to get into this. But the Ethiopians are insistent that this is a technical issue, this is an African issue, and that the GERD should be the flashpoint for African solutions to African problems. And any interference from the UN Security Council or the Arab League is seen as, in some Ethiopian media circles, as being borderline racist and borderline being de- denigrating the, uh, the quality of African institutions. And they are very much uh, resistant to any kind of external interference. And as long as that uh, dynamic persists, where Egypt and Sudan are open to internationalizing and Ethiopia is steadfastly resistant to it, we're not going to see any progress. So it was unsurprising that the US and Russia kicked this back to the uh, uh, African Union, because something very similar happened when it was advanced in the UN Security Council last year as well. So this is not something new. I think that uh, 
Egypt does have some legitimate concerns about the Ethiopian filling and what it might mean for water security, particularly if the uh, amount of water goes down to 25 to 30 BCM, it might lead to a drought. The uh, Ethiopians and some others on the Ethiopian side are arguing that the, the filling probably will not result in that and the Ethiopia should have jurisdiction regardless and that the problem in terms of the declining water access in Egypt has really been caused by population growth over the past uh, several decades. So there's a disagreement also on what to do in the case of a drought or in the case of an emergency. So the disagreement on how to handle the dam and disagreement on what to do in a moment of crisis. With respect to the US and Russian positions, uh, the United States uh, has been actively engaged in the GERD file ever since the uh, Obama administration first was approached by the Egyptians on it uh, back in April 2011 when the dam was being created. I know about some of these meetings from my own uh, research and interviews, but they were pretty standoffish on it until the past couple of years. And the Trump administration initially tried to frame itself as something of a mediator between all three sides, but it burnt its bridges over the course of 2020, particularly with the Ethiopians. First in February of 2020, by adopting a resolution without Ethiopia's consent that was just done between the Egyptians and the Sudanese, the Ethiopians felt that the U.S. was not giving them enough time to deliberate. Then the U.S. cut uh, $400 million in aid to the Ethiopians in the, the fall of 2020. And then there was that uh, comment from Trump, which basically kind of uh, gave Sisi a green light to bomb the Nile Dam that basically really eroded American credibility. And while the Biden administration has tried to recover with Jeremy Feltman going on a shuttle diplomacy mission and trying to engage with all the, all the sides, the Ethiopians don't really trust the United States, they're unhappy with the US sanctions on Tigray, and the US mediation has really stalled. So I think the US knows that it can't do very much. That's why it's pushing it back to the African Union. With respect to the Russian position, the Egyptians are disappointed with Russia. Uh, the Russians were willing to be a mediator at the Sochi summit in October of 2019. Uh, Putin supervised uh, meetings between uh, Sisi and Abiy Ahmed, where they discussed the issue. And uh, Russia was, uh, well, but Russia has since backtracked on it because I think it realizes that it can't really do very much good on its own. And it's gone back to saying it's a technical issue, it's an African Union issue, really uh, incorporating and reiterating some of Ethiopia's rhetoric while uh, expressing a superficial concern about what might happen in the event of a drought to appease Egypt and Sudan. And that is being viewed in Egypt as them being pro-Ethiopian and other moves like shielding Ethiopia over Tigray, the intelligence agreement, the military agreement that was signed on the 12th of July between Moscow and Addis Ababa have really heightened those tensions. So I think the Egyptians are very disappointed with the Russians, particularly when Lavrov went to Cairo, the Egyptians asked for Russian help in April, the Russians refused, and Russia's close relationship with Ethiopia is now being seen as a national security issue for the Egyptians. Whether that will disrupt their cooperation in Libya, whether that will disrupt this course of the Aldaba Rosatom Dam, uh, the Rosatom Civilian Nuclear Energy Project, I mean, as some have suggested, that's unclear. But I think that there's definitely a breach of trust between Cairo and Moscow that needs to be healed. Sam, does the Security Council outcome open up space for other countries? And you mentioned some, but let's talk here specifically about the UAE and Saudi Arabia to play a role in mediation. What are Abu Dhabi's and Riyadh's interests in the GERD and in mediation? They both have good relations with both countries. Uh, let's start with the UAE. It, they seem to be working quietly and pretty intensively in terms of their diplomatic mediation. And the US has recognized this effort. 
Right. I would say that the great powers and regional powers both have the same problem, right? As you say, they have close relations with the Egypt and Ethiopia, and they're really reluctant to take sides. The UAE has been something of an exceptional uh, actor in this respect, because it, uh, ha even though it has a very long-standing uh, relationship with, with Egypt, and it's been very close since uh, Sisi took over in, in 2013, and they're an active player in some ways in supporting uh, the increased role of Arab countries in regional crises. For example, in Syria, they think that the Arab countries really need to pull their own weight and counter what Russia, Iran, and, and Turkey are doing, particularly or at least add an Arab voice to the table. They're being a lot more of uh, a maverick actor in the GERD and a lot more willing to defy the Arab League consensus and uh, stake out a position that's genuinely neutral, that shuttles between the Egyptians, the Sudanese, and the Ethiopians. And while they haven't been that successful in bringing uh, all three parties together, they've acted as a dialogue facilitator, they've acted as a messenger between the different sides, and that's been uh, quite effective. So I think that they're, uh, they're, they're playing a, a, a rare and important role of being an agent of communication at a time when tensions are very high. But I think there's limits to what the UAE can do. Obviously, they were pairing their GERD mediation efforts with a mediation in the Sudan-Ethiopia-Al-Fashaga border dispute, and that mediation they had to cancel publicly because it was not making any headway. The Sudanese were the ones who were holding it up and, on that because they said the border was defined in 1902. We can't change it. Uh, the Egyptians were quite disappointed by the fact that the UAE did not side with the Arab League uh, position and try to be uh, more neutral on it. So there's a bit of a breach of trust there. And one of the Sudanese negotiators who arrived in Abu Dhabi had was blocked from entering the meetings because of allegedly because of COVID-19 and some in Sudan thought that was a that was just a cover up and they were just trying to keep some of the Sudanese negotiators out of the meetings and favor Ethiopia. So the UAE's mediation efforts have not really done that created much goodwill amongst the stakeholders at least from Abu Dhabi's point of view but the UAE is there as an important messenger. With respect to Saudi Arabia they've been much more doctrinaire in supporting the Arab League position basically uh, uh, Arab countries in an Arab dispute should reach out to uh, the Arab League. And, it, and much like the way Ethiopia says it's an intra-African issue, they view the Nile as an intra-Arab issue. So there's a lot of identity politics at stake here that's really driving the Saudi position. The Saudis, uh, I don't think, want to jump into the hornet's nest of becoming a mediator. At least that came from some of my interviews with Saudi officials, including for the article that I wrote um, in, uh, on Ethiopia a couple of weeks ago for Al Monitor. So I don't think they're going to mediate like the uh, like the Emiratis are. I think Qatar might actually be more involved in the mediation efforts than the Saudis are, but they will play uh, a role maybe as uh, in promoting Egyptian and uh, Sudanese objectives in the Arab League and to Western allies wherever they can. Sam, tell us more broadly about how the Red Sea fits into the security interests of the Gulf. And we've been talking about uh, Egypt and Ethiopia and the GERD dispute, but Somalia is also a key interest of these Gulf states as well. Right. So I would say that the uh, Red Sea and Gulf security have uh, always been to some degree interlinked, right? Because of the Babel Mandeb Straits, uh, strategic importance for the movement of oil reserves, and uh, obviously of the, you have to deal with the Strait of Hormuz on one end, in the Persian Gulf and then the Ababa Mandev for Saudi Arabia's oil to really be flowing at the uh, maximum level. So Gulf countries have always linked uh, insecurity on the Red Sea to insecurity in the Persian Gulf and external powers, in particular the Soviet Union, 
have linked the Gulf, the Red Sea, and the Indian Ocean all together too as one big littoral region. So it's not new that they're paying attention to the Red Sea in the context of the of Gulf security. But what is new is the extent and their involvement in such a diverse array of theaters. And that's the point that I wanted to make. And uh, Saudi Arabia always obviously views itself as the natural leader of the Red Sea uh, Security Coalition, as the natural guardian of collective security on the Red Sea. So it created a Red Sea Security Coalition in January of 2020 that included many literal states, but also not uh, states that were actually involved in, uh, in the security of the region. So the UAE, for example, was not included. The Saudis, much like they try to create their Islamic coalition, that broad, far-reaching coalition in Yemen, have tried to rope uh, Egypt militarily into some of these uh, military drills that they're holding. They've held uh, joint military drills even with China. So they're showing that they're engaging with Western powers, regional actors, and non-Western powers all in one go. But Saudi Arabia, obviously, as much as they uh, feel ownership over the region, they can't really go it alone. I mean, they're not playing much of a diplomatic role, as I said, in terms of actual mediation on the GERD or on the Sudan-Ethiopia border dispute. They, Southern Yemen, ever since uh, 2015, 2016, has been largely the uh, sphere of influence of the UAE, in particular at Aden, though they are putting more troops, perhaps, and more military presence there. There was reports of that last week. So Saudi Arabia needs other partners. That's where the UAE comes in. The UAE has, was important, obviously, in guaranteeing Red Sea security in the context of counterterrorism. So they were involved in numerous counterterrorism missions against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in southern Yemen during uh, the, the initial stages of the war. But since July of uh, 2019, since Anwar Gargash announced their peace first strategy and the end of their military intervention in Yemen, they have re revolved a lot more on remote power projection. So we should watch what they're doing in Mayan Island. We should watch what they're doing in Socotra. We should watch what they're doing also in Somaliland, where they may not have a base, but they're certainly establishing closer ties there. And they will be providing a bit of a remote cover and remote support for the Saudis. So I think that they have geopolitical contestation in some areas, like Aden, but the UAE's remote security presence, their diplomatic presence, and their soft power, which comes to humanitarian aid and other forms of involvement, dovetails and complements Saudi Arabia's hard security presence and coalition building efforts. So I think that their interests are largely complementary, even if they might compete at the tactical level. With respect to Somalia, very briefly, I think that uh, obviously external powers have become very involved in Somalia over the past several years. Turkey obviously has the undoubted ascendancy, particularly with regards to training of the Somali military and their economic development efforts give them a soft power reservoir that other regional actors cannot rival. But the UAE has legitimate uh, interests and uh, close ties with Somaliland and Puntland, which of course are controversial. The Somalis say that that's a de facto means of trying to partition Somalia. The Qataris are also involved too, but their role is also controversial because of all the conspiracies linking them to Al-Shabaab and Islamic extremism and all of this. So I think in the struggle for Somalia, Turkey's got an edge, but the UAE and Qatar are not going away. And all three of them could be backing rival candidates and rival factions as the Somali elections and some of the Somali political processes progress too. Sam, uh, I mentioned at the beginning, you're writing a, a book on Russia's policy in Africa. Help us understand what are Russia's interests in North Africa? What are the priorities uh, that Moscow has there? It's been involved in the Libyan civil war, for example. How important is this region for Moscow? So North Africa has been uh, an important uh, theater of Russian uh, 
interest, obviously, dating back to the uh, 1960s and their partnership with Gamal Abdel Nasser. And even when there was a broader divestment from Africa as a continent, because of North Africa's uh, proximity to the uh, Middle East and Egypt's role in the Arab-Israeli conflict and the, uh, the, the energy presence, the oil and gas factor, Russia's retrenchment from North Africa in the post-Soviet uh, period was not as pronounced as it was in the Sub-Saharan. So what we're seeing in North Africa is a long-term strategic commitment that's lasted for many decades. Russia's goals in North Africa are several. First of all, Russia wants to maintain positive relations with all of the stakeholders in that region without getting involved in the uh, internecine disputes. I mean, so they're not really wanting to take sides in the Western Sahara issue, for example. On Libya, they're obviously sympathetic towards Haftar and Egypt, but they're also actively consulting with the Algerians and the Tunisians to balance their position out and to try to show that they're more of a collective security provider. And they, uh, and that's because they've got commercial opportunities across the region. They've got the Eldabad civilian nuclear energy project with Egypt. They've got Sonatrax gas projects with Algeria. They've got uh, growing uh, trade relations uh, well, well, with Morocco and Tunisia, though smaller. So they want to maintain a broader a footing. Second, I mean, obviously, Russia views North Africa as another gateway to its standing as a Mediterranean power. So to complement its bases in Syria, it might want to have a base or facility in Libya, or at least base access in Egypt. So we should look at what they're doing in Benghazi or for a naval base or Tobruk for an air base. And some of their base sharing agreements in Egypt that facilitated Haftar's rise in 2016, 2017, because those are indicative of their desire to recapture that Soviet era standing as a Mediterranean, uh, truly true Mediterranean great power and contributor to Mediterranean security. So that's another dimension of it beyond the commercial. With respect to Libya, just very briefly where I see their objectives changing, I think that Russia's strategy in Libya was a bit, was quite unlike what we saw in Ukraine and Syria, where they had a very fixed set of goals. In Ukraine, it was about recapturing Crimea and uh, protecting ethnic Russians and taking and blocking Ukraine from Western integration. In Syria, it was about keeping Assad in power at all costs and preventing another, what they call a color revolution from happening there. In, uh, in Libya, it was a lot more about leverage. It was a lot more opportunistic. Haftar served their purposes for a period of time because of his control over Eastern and Southern Libya's ports and oil reserves and other areas of strength. But from since May or June of 2020, they've realized that Haftar's uh, ambitions do not really represent what's on the ground. So they uh, have been engaging with the Gwila Saleh, they've been engaging with the government of national unity, uh, Abdul Debeba, He's not particularly liked in Russia because he was seen as one of the figures who actually blocked get some of the Gaddafi era deals from coming to fruition, but they're still working with them regardless in a cordial fashion and they're supporting the Libyan elections. So I think that they'll support the elections, probably interfere on behalf of their preferred candidate to make sure they get a geostrategic advantage and try to leverage ties with both West and East to get nationwide reconstruction contracts as well as uh, energy contracts and, and a potential base. So that's what I see them doing in Libya going forward. Sam, does Russia have an interest or play in Tunisia, given recent events there? So Russia has never really paid much attention to developments in Tunisia. And uh, I've interviewed uh, a few uh, former Russian ambassadors to Tunisia. I mean, Alexei Potsarov and uh, Vanimin Popov. And they both told me that uh, really the only thing that was of interest was, was tourism, just because of the beach resorts. And there really wasn't much else. The Arab Spring obviously uh, did pique their interest because 
they were concerned about uh, about the prospect of a democratic revolution succeeding in the Arab world and what that might mean for stability at home because it coincided with the 2011-2012 protests. So the Russians did hover around Tunisia quite a bit after the uh, the uh, the Arab Spring, but that was more due to their own self-interest and insecurities at home, not really about uh, Tunisia as a prospective partner. And in the past decade, the relationship really hasn't taken off. But what's been interesting in the Russian media commentaries of the current uh, unrest in Tunisia has been the belief that this could spread and become a third Arab Spring. So second Arab Spring in 2019, first in 2011, now a third one that spreads to Algeria and Egypt. So there's a legitimate concern about that. And uh, I think that they'll be watching any kind of uh, popular unrest or mobilization there very closely, but they won't uh, necessarily get too involved in, in an economic or security sense anytime soon. Sam, um, we've been talking about a number of players in Africa, but we haven't talked about China. Uh, China is obviously given high priority through its Belt and Road Initiative to developing relations and uh, engagement in Africa. How do you see the relative strength and influence now and over the next decade of the US, Russia, and China in Africa? So that's a fascinating question. And uh, so much has changed over the past decade. It's almost hard to, or the past two or three years, it's almost hard to make a prognostication. But I would say that uh, China's uh, mega projects, their extensive infrastructure projects, their Belt and Road Initiative projects will probably slow down in Africa in the years to come because the Middle East is really much more of a growth area for the BRI and the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as uh, concerns of neocolonialism and local mistrust has led to some of their railway contracts and some of their connectivity projects not really reaching the uh, grand expansive heights that they may have envisioned in 2012 or 2013. But that doesn't necessarily mean the Chinese influence in Africa is going away or, or will not necessarily expand. It's just a decline in the mega projects. Obviously, there's a sovereign debt crisis in it all throughout Africa. Let's we're seeing countries like Kenya uh, that uh, the China needs to navigate. And uh, will China for, forgive some of that debt in, in pursuit of longer term strategic partnerships and preserving its soft power? Or will it play hardball on that debt and uh, force countries to repay and uh, risk breaches in their relationships? I mean, that's really unclear. So we got to see what happens there. But they definitely have a strategic commitment to uh, gaining control over Africa's resources and ports and uh, semiconductors and whatever material they have, building partnerships with African countries, playing in a narrow sense a more assertive role in African security, whether it be supervising Sahel peacekeepers or whether it be uh, dealing with regional disputes in the Horn of Africa like they did with Eritrea and Djibouti, but without getting into the front lines or, in, uh, or on the ground like the Russians and the French and the Americans have done. So they'll be... Uh, contributing to security more at a bird's eye helicopter view level rather than on the ground level while navigating a whole bunch of economic transitions. With respect to the Russians, I don't think that their strategy is really very much aligned with the Chinese or there isn't very much consultation even between them beyond a, an annual Russo-Chinese uh, forum, which is mostly in economics that's been held over the past three years. And that's because the Russian strategy relies a lot on capitalizing on disruption, filling security vacuums, using private military contractors in ways that the Chinese find uh, a bit discomforting. And also there's small scale competition in the civilian nuclear energy and the mining spheres. Obviously China's got a lot more to bring to the table than Russia does. It's pretty asymmetric, but there is competition at the economic level and 
Russia's strategy thrives in disruption. China thrives on being an order builder because of it wanting to protect and it, what it has in the Belt and Road. So Russia and China's close systemic relationship is not necessarily playing out in Africa, and that will probably limit Russia's ability to challenge on the continent, but it will also prevent the nightmare scenario that, we, that everybody's concerned about in Washington about this kind of Sino-Russian front attacking American interests. With respect to the United States, I, I'm encouraged by some of the moves that the Biden administration has done, particularly Biden's appointment of an envoy to the Horn of Africa, his involvement on, uh, on the GERD issue, on, on debt forgiveness in Sudan, on Tigray, on other regional crises. But the United States still has a long way to go, and there's still other vacuums that they need to fill. I think that the US, even if it provided a small amount of diplomatic in involvement in a place like Central African Republic or in, uh, in Libya, it could really do a long way towards uh, challenging Russian influence there. So a little can go a long way, and the US still needs to develop a continent-wide strategy to really balance the, the threat, and it should treat the uh, Russians and Chinese as discrete challenges. And that's kind of how I see the, uh, the dynamic uh, shaping up. Sam, thank you for uh, your taking the time today to be on, on the Middle East. I appreciate your, your analysis and your many contributions to All Monitor. Thank you very much. It was great to be on this podcast. We will be back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel, Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, Sam Romani, and to our production team of Phil Calabro of Al Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will return next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcasts on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Mm-hmm.